Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to be in this space together for a beautiful sunshine outside and um, uh, in a community that we can have here. Lord, we just pray that as we approach your scripture today, as we look at a story we've probably heard many times before, uh, that we can see new things in it, uh, that we can see new insights into who you are uh, and what it means for us in our lives. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, Uh, so this week uh, we start a new mini-series. If you've been with us through 2022, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Matthew. Uh, We've been taking, trying to hit every single section uh, in the book of Matthew, and so far um, we've made it up to chapter 21. So today is chapter 21. Uh, The story we're going to look at today is one that you've probably, if you've been around church at all, um, have heard before because it's the story of Palm Sunday. So usually we teach it the week before Easter, and we hit it every year. Uh, and that always presents a challenge as a pastor when, you're, when you get to a story that you're going to hit every single year, like the Easter story, like the Palm Sunday story. What do you do with it? Um, and so uh, a number of years ago, um, actually one of our other pastors, Tim Wilson from South Harbor, did a ton of work on the story of Palm Sunday. Uh, and we've all slowly been stealing it from him for the last few years. Um, it's one of the beautiful things about working in network is that when somebody does really great work, uh, we get to share it with each other. Uh, what that also means is that as we're putting it together this morning, some of what you're going to hear, you've heard in other spaces before. It'll be reviewed to you. If you're new to Harbor, all of it will be new, so that's great. Uh, if not, we're, gonna, we're taking pieces uh, that you may have heard before and putting them together in a different kind of way. Um, to be honest, this particular passage is, is one of my favorite to teach because it's, it's so layered. There's so many different things going on in the story uh, of Palm Sunday that we miss. Um, we've talked a lot in Matthew. As we've looked in Matthew, we see that, that, that there's, you can read through Matthew and, and understand one level of what's going on there. You read it another time, you see a whole new thing. Um, that's true with the story of Paul, Palm Sunday as well. This, this Sunday also kicks off a new mini-series in Matthew. So if you've been with us, we've been working through the book of Matthew, and we've kind of broken it down into little mini-series, kind of themes that Matthew pulls together in these different sections. And so as we, uh, as we kick off a new series this, this Sunday, um, it's, it, we're, we're titling it Authority and Power, because what we're going to see starting today with Palm Sunday as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, um, from now until the crucifixion, so actually uh, the first 20 chapters of Matthew are kind of a broad stroke. We go from his birth to th- his th- end of his three years of ministry in 20 chapters, and then in the rest of the book of Matthew, we'll all be dealing with a single week. So we're actually going to take a, a close look at every, uh, of everything that happens in the final week of Jesus' life. And what you see over and over and over again is him in Jerusalem running into the authorities and powers that exist in this space. Uh, he comes in conflict with the, the Roman power structures, with somebody named Pilate uh, he, or, uh, or King Herod or the, and all of those different people. He comes into contact with the religious power as an authorities, whether it was in the temple and, and the money changers there, which we'll see next week, or it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who uh, actually hated each other for most of their lives, and to, except for the last week of Jesus' life, they start working together against him. And so we'll be focused on how Jesus pushes back on those authority and power structures. I think it'll be really, really great. But the story we look at today is layers, is layered. It's the story of Palm Sunday and has so many different layers going into it. We're going to see today that there's a historical layer to this section. Uh, as the first audience saw the, th- the things that, that we're going to read about today unfolding, as Matthew's readers would see these stories, they knew that there's a historical context that is shaping the way that Matthew tells the story. It's shaping the way that Jesus enters the city. There's also a political layer as well. This political layer, there's things that are going on um, at this time between Rome and Israel that really shape what happens in this particular story of how, how, uh, how Jesus is betraying himself. There's a biblical layer we've seen throughout the entire book of Matthew that he keeps taking these Old Testament ideas and, put, and, and showing how they're fulfilled or completed in Jesus. And so we'll see that today as well. There's a geographical layer. So the, the actual directions in which Jesus enters the city, the places he's walking through, uh, all play into our understanding of how this story works. Um, I've shared with you a number of times, and I love to be able to teach this story now. Um, Last summer I was in Israel, uh, and you realize how much of how the Bible is written deals with geography, how where places are, directions they're coming from. 
uh, in, a small, in a small country like Israel, uh, where you're coming from and what, where you're going matters a lot because there's 20-some different microclimates. You can go from desert to green in 25 minutes, which is just nuts. You can go from mountains to death, Dead Sea, the, one of the lowest places on earth, in five minutes. It's crazy the geographical impact uh, that, that Israel has on these stories. We'll see that again today. Because what we're going to see in the story we look at is that Jesus has just left Galilee, which is in the northern part uh, of Israel, and he's walking down towards Jerusalem. And, and so we'll see how those particular things play in as well. We also know that there is a social layer to this whole thing. Uh, who, are, who are the people? What are their concerns? What are their fears? What do they want in this story? And all of those people, pieces work together uh, to create an electric kind of moment in Jesus' life. As, if you, you, as we read the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, well, you need to feel the, an anticipation kind of building, and we'll, we'll point out why. Because all those pieces come together to make the story that we know. So, let's start at the beginning with Palm Sunday. Even it, like I said, it's one of those stories you've probably heard a lot of times before. Palm Sunday is the moment in which Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, the people from the city come out and they wave palm branches. You might remember that. He rides in on a donkey. They're shouting Hosanna. Uh, they're calling him a king. And so it's this big event that happens. Uh, you've seen the pictures. We've actually, if you were here on Palm Sunday, normally then our kids would come down the middle actually waving palm branches, if you remember that. Uh, but there's so much more to the story like we've said before. Um, all right, let's start by just walking through the different layers that we were talking about. Let's start, start with, the, with the geographical layer uh, on Jesus heading into Jerusalem. Um, so, <clears throat> Matthew 21, verse 1, starts like this. As they approached Jerusalem. So what we see there is we, ha we have to start, we have to begin by asking ourselves the question, why is Jesus traveling to Jerusalem in the first place? He's from a region about 90 miles north in Galilee, we just said that, and he has to walk from there down into Jerusalem, which is about 90 miles, and it's not an easy walk either. It's up and down, it's through the desert, it's over mountains, it's all of those kinds of things. And he's got to go all of that way by foot. So if he lives 90 miles north, we have to ask the question, why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he heading to that place in this particular time? And the answer is, is because Jesus is a Jew, which hopefully it's not surprising to you. You know that. He, was, he actually lived inside of the Jewish religious structure. And like all good, all good Jews, you would head to Jerusalem once a year on this particular Sunday. Because the Sunday that Jesus is heading into Jerusalem is uh, the beginning of the celebration of Passover. Now, it's, which Passover is a massively big holiday on the Jewish calendar. Um, it... it, it it's, it, it's, a, it's a remembrance of how God released Israel from slavery in Egypt and how he did that. And so they celebrate that. It's a massive, massive deal. And so Je Jesus is traveling 90 miles north from the north down to the south to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Which brings us to the biblical layer of what's going on in this particular story. Now, if you grew up in church, you might know the story of Passover as well. Uh, it was a celebration of an event that happens about 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, the moment when God, through a man named Moses, releases the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now, Moses plays a critical role in that story. But if you're a good Israelite, good Jewish person, you know it wasn't Moses who actually brings the people out of Egypt. Um, they wouldn't celebrate, they, they celebrated Moses as a great leader, but not as someone who conquered Egypt. Uh, there was no doubt in anyone's minds that Moses wasn't a military leader that led them out of Egypt. God was the one who fought the battle. God did the fighting when it came out of Egypt because no one else could. During the time of slavery in the, in the book of Exodus, Egypt is the political powerhouse in the world. No one can beat Egypt. They, they are the world superpower. Uh, and so what we see is that God systematically dismantles that power structure. Uh, each of the ten plagues is related to one of their gods in and, and, and which God is declaring, I am bigger and stronger and more powerful than the gods of Egypt. So the idea is that, that all Israelites knew that, that Moses isn't the one who did the fighting. God is the one who did the fighting. And so they celebrate that by celebrating Passover each year. Because Passover had two parts for them, two things that, two reasons why they would celebrate it. The first one was to remember. 
Passover was such a big deal because it was the remembering of when God set his people free. Passover existed to remember that moment. So year after year, if you're Jewish, you would leave your home, you'd travel to Jerusalem to celebrate together the Passover. Uh, and it was, it was a huge party, right? The first century uh, historian Josephus looks around and estimates there are about 2.7 million people who pack into the city of Jerusalem. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you because we have cities like New York, uh, which, which have more, more people than that. Um, but 2.7 million people in a single spot in the ancient world is enormous. Uh, the cities were not built to hold that kind of, that many people. Uh, there's just not enough spots. So it would have been a crowd kind of like you see there, right? Just everything jam-packed into a small, small spot. It would have, the city would have been electric with how many people are in it, not just inside the city itself, but they would have even had to camp all around the city. So there's just people everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of people packed into a small space, all there to remember time in their past which God had set them free from a global military superpower. In the past, it was the Egyptians. In the present, maybe Rome. We can, we'll keep that thought in our minds. So the first reason that the Israelites celebrated Passover was to remember. But there was another one as well. The second was to rehearse. Uh, Passover is described uh, in the Bible as a Jewish festival, and the Hebrew word for festival is the word mikra. So if you wanted to learn a, a Hebrew word today, you got to mik, you actually got to get the k, which I'm not as good with, mikra. Uh, and that fe- and the, so we translate that in our English Bibles as festival, but it could also be translated as rehearsal or to rehearse. So Israelites believed that their festivals were to remember things and to, to bring certain things to mind, but they were also practicing for something that was coming in the future. They believed they weren't just about remember something that happened, but also looking forward to something that would happen again, which is a big detail to remember because, like we said, in the time of Jesus, there wasn't the Egyptians they needed to get rid of, but there was another superpower who was occupying their space, which was the Roman Empire. And so you've got this celebration that helps you remember what God did in the past. In Egypt, God was the one who fought and freed us from the oppression of the Egyptians. They're rehearsing that, or they're remembering that, and then rehearsing him doing it again in the future as Rome is now owning Jerusalem. You can see that there might already be some tension building around what's going to happen in this particular story. To add to the tension is the other layer, the political layer. Because the Romans made the Egyptians look weak. The Egyptians were a superpower in their day, and their, but, their, but their kingdom only uh, was smaller. It was the, around the Nile there, and they were very, very powerful in that space. Uh, but the Roman Empire... Uh, if you, we all, almost everybody knows about the Roman Empire because of the scope of their conquest. Uh, they stretched from India to London, right, or to, to, they, uh, to uh, Great Britain, um, and everything in between. Northern Africa, the empire was massive. Uh, they were, the Romans were larger, they're stronger, they're more victor- vicious uh, than the Egyptians could ever even conceive to be. And that's who occupies Israel at this time. The Romans were also extremely good at uh, keeping people in line, whether it was either through inv- inviting them into their culture, and they hoped that you would join their culture and we, everything would be great. But if you didn't, they were exceptionally good at making you, uh, they were exceptionally good at getting you to, to, to embrace their culture because if you didn't, uh, they'd just kill you. And they usually would do that in incredibly uh, horrible and painful ways. Um, one of the most common uh, during the time of Jesus was torture device, which used to just be a stake, uh, but they didn't want to impale you on a stake because you would die too quickly, so they turned a stake into a cross, a device like that, which we, we hang up um, because we know what it represents now, but in that world, it's an ancient torture device. They didn't want to put you on a, they wanted the, they wanted the intimidation factor of someone being on a stake, but they wanted to add to the pain, because, so they didn't want you to die right away, and so they would nail you to a cross, which is incredibly painful. Uh, and terrifying, obviously. The historical record from this period is just one, there's just one account of Rome crucifying people for, in so many different ways. They would even crucify entire cities at a time. Uh, we've got historical evidence that about 3,000 3, people in the city of Emmaus were all crucified at once. 
Which, is, which brings an interesting context into the, one of the stories you might have heard about two disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. Um, those two people probably joined Jesus as a result of seeing what happened in the town. Uh, it's said that that road that they were walking down after that massacre would have been lined with crosses. So as you're traveling that line, there are people on either side of you who are nearly dead, who are in excruciating pain, but not. It was horrific. Uh, if, if you, we, we like sometimes glorify Rome in our minds as being this powerhouse, but they were exceptionally cruel and awful. We have historical evidence that 2,000 people in the city of Sephoris were crucified, uh, which would have happened when Jesus was a child. And now Sephoris is only three miles from a city that you may have heard of, Nazareth. So right near where Jesus was born, or, was, or where Jesus lived. We, we have evidence of people of, of the entire town of, Mag, uh, of Magdala uh, being killed and, and crucified. You may have heard of somebody from that particular town as well. Mary Magdalene comes from Magdala. We see, that, we see them wiping out people in Gamala and Masada all over the place. The Romans were vicious. They were said to line the streets with crosses so that every time you left your house, if you were the one, one of the people who survived in your city, you would walk by them, sending a clear message, do not mess with Rome. So Passover is happening. The Passover is about worship, but it's also about protest. The world is not how it should be. The Romans are worse than the Egyptians, but God, we, they believed, could defeat them. You could, they could, God could set them free just like he had 1,500 years earlier with the Egyptians. And so every year, if you were Jewish, you'd head down to the, Pas the Passover festival to rehearse. Every year would pray, you'd sing songs, you'd tell stories about what happened then, about how God raised up a man named Moses and then fought the Egyptians and set them free. You also would be waiting for a new Moses who would lead the charge we, the prophets referred to this person as the Messiah, God's anointed one. They talked about it being the day of the Lord, who would then lead the charge like Moses did to expel the foreign powers around you and set up a new way. So you can imagine as they're all traveling to Jerusalem each year for the Passover, they're already rehearsing that, thinking, is this going to be the year, is this going to be the day that the prophets told us that were coming, the day of the Lord, is this going to be it? And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the Passover at this time with all of these different things going on as well. Now, Passover being a Jewish celebration was great for the Jews, but it was also something that was intimidating to the Romans. Uh, having that many people in one spot is dangerous if you're trying to rule an empire, right? Because what if they decide to get a little rowdy, right? And so... When they, they did, Rome knew they had to let Israel celebrate their, their particular festival or they'd have other problems, but they also knew that they needed to keep order. And so there was a governor in the region at the time. You may have heard his name before. His name was Pontius Pilate. And he was the governor of Israel at this particular time. He was a Roman governor. And so it does raise a few questions, though, because Pilate is, so in this particular space, as Jesus is riding towards Jerusalem, so is Pilate. And we ask ourselves, why? Why would a Roman governor in Jerusalem, uh, or why would a Roman governor head to Jerusalem at this particular time? Uh, because actually, Pilate did not live in Jerusalem. That wouldn't have been the place where he would have uh, hosted his power. He would have lived in a, uh, he lived, we know that Pilate lived in a mansion off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in a city called Caesarea. So if you want to throw up the map, Jerusalem is down in the south there. Caesarea is up uh, in the, on the top left there. Now, Caesarea is right on the Mediterranean Sea. I actually had a chance to visit it this past year. Uh, it's an absolute, I, I well, it's in ruins now, but I have to imagine it was an absolutely beautiful city in its day. Uh, these are the ruins of Caesarea right here. Um, it's actually, qu quite a few of them are in really good shape. Um, you can see in the background there, there's actually a really well-preserved um, horse racing track where they would do um, games and things like that. Um, but, so Pilate's Mansion is here. If you go to the next photo, um, that's what it looks like, right? He's coming from an absolutely beautiful place to head across the deserts to Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Uh, <clears throat> well, there's two reasons. First, he had to collect taxes for Rome, and this was a great time to do it because all people were in that space. But the bigger reason is number two, uh, to keep the peace. See, Pilate has a problem. 
Pilate, would leave, Pilate needs to head to Jerusalem because his entire job is to maintain order. We also know from history that Pilate, is, um, Pilate isn't well spoken of in history. He, he's kind of portrayed as kind of like a bumbling failure. Uh, he had been given a number of assignments before Jerusalem, so this, the fact that he even was in Israel was a punishment. Nobody liked to be the governor of Israel for a couple of reasons. It's not the nicest place to be. You're not in the center of Roman culture, and so you don't get all the, Roman, the nice Roman things that you would get in some of the bigger cities like Ephesus or Rome itself. Um, and, and, and the other problem is Israel had a bad habit of revolting. Uh, and if they revolted under your watch, you're dead. And so you didn't, nobody wanted to go to Israel, so Pilate probably one of them. And so he realizes here that he has failed in a couple other spots, and he cannot have a riot on his watch in Jerusalem. That would be devastating to him. He probably doesn't survive that if that happens. And so what Pilate does then is, uh, as this party is going on, he, every single year, would go on a march from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. And so, uh, and Pilate would stage, he, he would do it in a way that everybody would, uh, that what everybody would see him on the way. This wasn't a nut, he wouldn't just go by himself with a couple horses. He would actually march from Caesarea to, uh, to, to Jerusalem with six legions of soldiers. Now just to get that, your mind wrapped around that, a legion is about 6,000 men. It's not about, it is 6,000 men. Which means that an army of 36,000 Roman soldiers are marching across the country. Uh, it's just not something you miss, right? It's, it's, it's a clear sign, looking similar to that, uh, that, that, there, that there is a powerful, there's a force that's bigger and more powerful than you that owns this space, and you better watch yourself, right? Don't even think about revolting or you're going to be crushed. Now, Pilate would have led this army on a horse from the front, right? He would have, he would have, he would have, been decked out in all of his gear, which has the, you know, you've seen the big Rome, Roman hats. Um, he would have had uh, a breastplate with a golden eagle on it just to show that I represent, golden eagle is the, rep, uh, is a, um, is the symbol of Rome. So you would, he would have been decked out in his fancy, flashy, shiny armor that screams, we are Rome, don't mess with us. There would have been banners on either side of him. His best soldiers would have been there. Their shields would have been polished. This would have, this, all of these things were meant to be intimidating and, uh, and amazing. So you can picture it. We have 36,000 soldiers, sun reflecting off the metal of their armor, the metallic sounds of soldiers marking, marching together. The whole thing is about intimidation. In fact, even in the temple of Jer in Jerusalem, the Romans wanted you to know that they were over everything. So in the temple in Jerusalem, they actually built a fortress called the Antonian Fortress, which is right outside of the walls of the temple, but it was higher than the Temple Mount itself. So even when you were, you can see it here in this picture. So you see in the, in the far right there, that's the, the Antonian Fortress. And so <clears throat> you have the temple there, Herod's Temple, and the, that fortress was just a little bit higher than that particular temple. Uh, making a point that even when you're worshiping your God in Jerusalem, realize that the one looking down on you worshiping is Rome. We're in charge. We're, we're, <clears throat> we are the, we're more powerful than you are. So let's keep going in the story. So where is Jesus? Uh, so, so he's just outside Jerusalem. Verse 1, Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives... Where that is on a map is here, if you want to throw up that map. Where, so you can see he's starting in Capernaum where Jesus lives. He makes the path down that way, comes through Jer Jericho to Bethpage, which is right there. So we're just outside of Jerusalem. Now Pilate is coming from Caesarea, uh, and he's coming, and, he, and he's entering uh, from the west. He's entering the city from, from the west of, of Jerusalem. Well, we can see here that Jesus is coming in from the east. So, he's, so as, as, as Pilate is marching in from Caesarea on the west, Jesus comes and loops around and enters the city uh, from Bethpage and Bethany, which is on the east. That matters. So we have two people coming into the city from different directions. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus is at a hill called the Mount of Olives, which a picture of that too was there this past year. Um, this is the Mount of Olives looking down into Jerusalem there. Um, the, just so you can kind of picture yourself, the big golden dome that's in the back there is actually, that's the Temple Mount, um, and that is the Dome of the Rock, which is now uh, a Muslim site. 
Um, but that's the, sa- that's the same um, Temple Mount we were looking at in the picture a few, few slides ago. Um, and so from the Mount of Olives, you can see across the entire region. So, you could, so from there, you would actually be able to see uh, uh, Pilate marching into the city with his 36,000 sh- soldiers. You'd be able to see the armor. You'd be able to hear the sounds. You could see the dust clouds rising. And so Pilate comes from the west, and Jesus comes from the east. Keep those two things in mind. And as Jesus enters the city, um, we, the people, there's, like we said, the city is jam-packed with people. There's also people living outside the city. And so as, as both of these parties are happening, people would come out to watch them. So as Pilate enters the city, uh, realize you didn't have iPads or TVs or anything like that to entertain you. So this is must-see TV, right? Must-see event as Pilate comes in. And so you would come out for the city that way. Well, the same thing starts to happen with Jesus, though. As Jesus enters into the city, people rush out. And if you remember the story, they rush out with palm branches, right? Which is kind of a strange thing. In John, in John, it says it this way. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, blessed is the King of Israel. Now, it's easy for us who've gotten kind of used to the story to just kind of discount the palm branches and not think much about them. Um, but that's one of the details uh, that, that, that wouldn't have been lost on their original readers at all. For us, if you actually stop and think about it, the waving of a palm branch is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Right? Jerusalem's in the desert. There are date palms there. But you have to work to find them if you're around Jerusalem. If you're in Jericho, it's different. If you walk to Jericho, there are tons of palms. Uh, but in Jerusalem, not as many. So people go get these palm branches. And what are they doing? Why are they waving them? We, we, we don't... If, Let's say the president were to visit, right? We, people would go out to see his per- procession too, but you wouldn't take a stick and wave it, would you? That would be a weird thing to do. What would we do instead? Let's say there's a president, you'd clap maybe, or you bring a banner or a flag, right? To kind of wave as they're going on. That's what you want to keep in mind as you're reading this particular story. When they're waving palm branches, it's the same thing as waving a flag. Uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's much, much more than just um, just. It, it, it's more like waving a sign. It's much more than just waving a stick to wave a stick. See, the palm branch is politically loaded. Why? Well, that's the historical layer that plays into this particular story. In order to understand the palm branches, you actually need to back up to about 200 years earlier. There was a horrible ruler. Um, when they, so 200 years earlier, Rome wasn't in charge of Israel. Greece was. And in that particular time, there were, there were, uh, a, a Greek leader rose up by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, which the word Antiochus was his given name. Epiphanes he took on for himself. It literally means God manifest in Greek. So you can, tell, you can see the, the, um, the arrogance of this particular guy. Antiochus Epiphanes believed he was God manifest on earth, that he had been given a divine right to rule, uh, and he absolutely despised Jewish people, which is a problem when you rule the Jewish region. He despised Jewish culture. He despised Jewish customs. He despised the people. Now, the, the problem was, uh, and so he, he systematically actually often would massacre large numbers of Jewish people. When it really reached its head, Antiochus, uh, so I can't go into the whole story of the intertestamental period, but often the, there were, the, after Alexander the Great died, he spread up his kingdom between his four generals. One section of, the section of Egypt was given to one, the section of the, the Jewish Israel region was given to another. Those two sections uh, uh, fought constantly for control of the other. So, uh, so but the Potomis ruled in, um, in Egypt and the Seleucids ruled in Israel. And those two were constantly jockeying for power over those reasons, trying to take over the other. So Antiochus was a Seleucid in in that particular region, and one time he decides to ride to Egypt to try to take it back again. He goes to fight. He rides through Jerusalem. He gets to Egypt. He fights a battle. It goes terribly. He loses. It goes so badly that actually word comes back to Israel saying Antiochus has been killed and so, like we mentioned, Israel has a bad habit of revolting often um, throughout history, and so this is their moment to do it again. They hear Antiochus is dead, they revolt. The problem is, he wasn't. He didn't die. 
He hears about their revolt. He's already, he's already ticked off he lost in Egypt, and he goes crazy in Israel. Starts slaughtering everyone, makes a commitment to actually wipe out Jewish culture altogether. Uh, this, in the book of Daniel, it talks about an abomination that causes desolation. It's very, very likely that Daniel is writing about Antiochus Epiphanes. One of the things he actually does is he goes into the Holy of Holies, he smashes the altar, he builds a new one to Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on it. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, pigs are unclean. It would be, actually, he would have to work harder. He, he worked hard to be as blasphemous as he could possibly be, an abomination that causes desolation, right? So Antiochus is horrible. And so on the, wave, on the wake of what Antiochus did to try to wipe out the Jewish people, eventually the Jewish people rise up. As the story goes, there was a, there were, it was in a village uh, where, where um, uh, a group, uh, a family known as the Maccabees lived, where the Roman soldiers came, uh, and they demanded that the, the, the priest of this particular city sacrifice a pig to Zeus. Now, the priest in the city was a man named Matthias, Matthias Maccabee. He's right there. You know, he's got a big old knife. Um, he, so he refused to do the sacrifice. Um, as the story goes, uh, the Roman soldiers said, either make the sacrifice or we're going to kill everybody in the city, which they probably would have. So, so the story goes that somebody uh, stepped forward and said they would do it, uh, which was not cool with the rest of the people in the city. So one of, the, one of Matthias's sons, this, as the story goes, stabs that person. They revolt and end up uh, killing all of the Roman soldiers, kicking off the Maccabean Revolution. Um, Long story short, uh, Judas Maccabee, the hammer, which is, kind of, which is an awesome name, uh, uh, actually begins to lead the, this group of rebels. They actually are able to expel Greece from Israel, uh, kicking them out entirely um, and, and, and self-governing for a time. The very end of the story is one that matters for this space too because uh, it's, after, they, after the Maccabees were able to expel Greece, from the, the Israelite region, they had to celebrate the Passover. Now, to do that, you have to light a menorah for eight days, um, and you need oil for all of those days. They didn't have enough, so they prayed, and miraculously, there was enough oil. You know it as Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah comes out of this particular space. Now, that celebration of Hanukkah, the celebrate which happens at Passover um, in, the, in this particular space, was marked... Um, by, by, by a certain way, the festival of Sukkot. So if you actually want to throw up the next, which is also Passover. That you would always, so this particular festival, this is also in the Passover week space, you would, at this particular festival you would pray, this is the festival in which you pray for God, to God for rain for the next year. And so before the Maccabean Revolution, you would actually bring out palm branches and wave them during this celebration because a bunch of palm branches waved together sounds like rain. Make sense? Now, as this particular festival was celebrated during the time of the Maccabees, the, the meaning shifted a little bit. So you used to wave palm branches because they sounded like rain. Now you wave palm branches because they sound like rain and as a celebration of the Maccabean Revolution. Uh, the, the palm branch became the symbol of the Maccabees. So if we actually have coins from that era that were minted that are all covered in palm branches. So the palm branch isn't some kind of uh, um, neutral symbol here at all. The palm branch is the, is, is, has become a symbol of the Maccabean Revolution, of this, this expelling of Greece, this independent rule that they had. Which brings us then back to the present. 200 years later, after the Maccabean Re the Revolution, and Jesus is marching into the city. The Jewish people are no longer free. This time it's not the Egyptians or the Greeks, it's the Romans, and the Romans are worse than both of the previous. And so at this particular time, a resistance movement has is, is risen up among the Jewish people. Uh, it, it was known as the Zealots. Their mantra was, do whatever it takes. So they often would kill Romans uh, to, to try to take back their particular space. Their propaganda slogan was, Hosanna which is interesting, right? Especially as we're going to see in our story in a minute. Their flag is the palm branch because it represents freedom in the Maccabean Revolution. And their weapon of choice is something called a sicari, which is a hook knife. 
um, it's, which is more than just a weapon, it's their symbol as well, and that'll matter in a second. So what we see actually is that we do have Jesus, Jesus interacts with the zealots often, so he understands what they're going on to. He actually has a zealot in his crew, right? Among the 12 disciples is a guy named Simon the zealot. Uh, there's also another guy named Judas Iscariot, which means Judas of the Sicarii, so we know he's a zealot as well, right? Actually, it's interesting, you see how these layers come together. In the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's met in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter says that particular night, um, we have two swords, right? Well, what is, why does he have two swords? Because there are two followers of Jesus who are zealots. They're both carrying swords. See how all those pieces fit together? It's really interesting. So when people wave their palm branches at Jesus, what they're, and they're shouting Hosanna, when they call Jesus king, what they're doing is saying, what they're, what they're proclaiming in this particular space is the, is the mantra of the zealots. Essentially, what they're, what they're advocating for is saying, Jesus killed them, get rid of Rome. They're basically saying, we'll fight with you. Be like Moses, be like Judas Maccabee, kill them, be our king, get rid of them. You can see why there would be so much tension in this particular space at this time. It's drip, this whole story is dripping with revolution. Pilate is marching from the west to show his power, to show the might of Rome. Jesus comes from the east, and people are shouting, it's time, it's going down, this is going to happen, while they're rehearsing the Passover, which is the celebration of when God expelled Egypt. Now, it's interesting, though. As Pilate marches into the city, he does it with might and power. Jesus is going to march into the city, too, but he does it differently, doesn't he? He comes in not with an army, not on a big white steed. The Bible tells us he comes in on a donkey. The story goes like this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mounts of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once, you're, once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone say, says anything to you, uh, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. <clears throat> Again, what you would imagine if you were going to host a revolution is you would ride in on a mighty steed, right? You'd ride in on something that looks powerful. Now, donkeys aren't that, right? We have a picture of a donkey here. They're ridiculous looking, right? They're not, they're not mighty. They're not powerful. They're comical, right? They're slow. They're stubborn. And you, I mean, you you don't ride a donkey into battle, right? That's just, it's not going to work. You'd get massacred. In fact, the donkey had become the Jewish symbol for peace. Because the only time you'd ride a donkey to war is if you were giving up, if you were, uh, if you were surrendering. You've got to imagine, the, the, the crowds were probably a little confused by this. But they also knew something else. They knew the prophets. What we see in the Old Testament is we see a number of declarations of Jesus, of the Messiah, of this coming one who's going to turn everything over, riding in on donkey first. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to, say, to your daughter, say to your daughter Zion, see your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. I actually think we have that passage if you want to throw that up there, Chuck. The next slide there. So we see that in Matthew. The disciples uh, went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought a donkey and a colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd sped their cloaks on the, on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. The crowds then went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. See, the crowds understand that if we're going to get rid of Rome, it's going to have to be like it was in Egypt. That Jesus is riding in, but not because he's giving up. Yes, the donkey is the symbol for peace, but it's not because it's giving up. It's like it was in Egypt. They're riding in on a donkey because Jesus isn't going to fight, but God is. They get that idea because they've read through the Old Testament. Matthew quotes a line from the Old Testament prophet, a man named Zechariah. He talked about a king coming on a donkey, right? You can read his prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's what comes right after that, though. From Zechariah, And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, 
and the battle bow will be, bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, uh, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So according to the prophets, this guy is going to ride, into a do- ride into, on a donkey uh, and take away the war horses from Jerusalem, which is fascinating because what did we say is going on at the same time? What's Pilate doing from the west? He's riding into the city on a whole bunch of war horses, isn't he? And so they've seen him come in that way, and they know this prophecy that says that your king is going to come in on a donkey to eliminate the war horses from Jerusalem. Again, the tension is palpable. All of these layers continue to just add to that pressure. So if you put yourself in this story, Jesus is coming from the east, Pilate is coming from the west. Why did they wave palm branches, the symbol of resistance? Because that's the only way you get peace is to fight. Jesus, we want you to be our king, not Caesar, not Pilate. So kill them, get rid of them, get them out, or, have, or like Moses, have God do it for us through you. This is a very dangerous thing that's going on. What if, the, what if Rome had heard you de- declaring all of these things? You better be careful because it might not end well. And that's exactly what some people in the crowd say. If you look at the story back in Matthew, what you see here, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Now that word is an under-translation of what the uh, Greek word actually is. Stirred uh, should carry with it like uh, they're frenzied, right? They're, get, they're worked up. It's not just like, ooh, something's happening. No, everybody's pumped, and you've seen that already. The whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. <clears throat> we, we, get, we, get, um, we get another account from Luke, and it says this as well. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Jesus, keep them quiet. Right? What, um, <clears throat> what, what's going to happen if Rome hears all of these declarations? They're going to kill us. And so Jesus responds, he said, I tell you, if, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Now, this was, this was a line that was really fascinating um, because, when I was in Israel because I, I didn't know if I really understood it before, but when I stood on top of the Mount of Olives, uh, it was pointed out to me something. Actually, if you can show this next picture. So this, again, is the picture from the, the top of the Mount of Olives. Um, so, you, so actually, as, um, as Jesus was riding in, there, there's, a, there's a gate that's now, it's, you can't see it because they they closed it off. It's like it's a part of the wall now. But the gate that Jesus would have rode in on is right in front of you. Um, you'll have to just trust me on that one. So standing on the so as he rode in, what we're looking at in the front of this picture would actually be right behind him, right? Now what you see right at the front of that picture is actually an old Jewish cemetery. It's the oldest one they found in Jerusalem. It would have been around. It wouldn't have been this big, but it would have been around in the time of Jesus in this particular spot. Now, it's hard to see here, but you can see in the bottom corner a little bit clearly, there's all these little things on top of all those tombs, right? You see those? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. You can see them best in the, in the left hand over there. Maybe it's, it's still hard to see. Well, there was a practice, that Jewish people still have a practice um, of, of, treating, of how they treat their, their dead. Uh, in America, if you go visit a cemetery, what do you do? Bring flowers, right? You, drop, you, you leave flowers or a wreath or something on, on, the, on, the, on the gravestone to, to remember the person who's died. Well, in Israel, Israelite culture, you don't leave flowers. Flowers wouldn't last very long in the desert. Um, you leave rocks. You come and you take a rock and you place it on top of someone's grave. So all of a sudden, then Jesus' words change a little bit. When they're saying, hey, keep it quiet. We don't want Rome to hear us. He says, if I keep my people quiet, the very stones will cry out. What he's saying is, if they don't yell, the dead will, which is pretty powerful, right? Sorry, I lost my spot there. So these people believe, they're, they're frenzied, they're riled up, they're re- they believe that Jesus is coming in to expel Rome. They want, him to be, they want him to be their king, and they're crying out, get rid of Rome. But as we read the story in the book of Luke, we realize that they're missing the point. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when the enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. 
just realizes they've entirely missed the point. They think peace is going to come through a military uprising. They think it's going to come as Jesus expels Rome out. They think he's going to come in and like Moses, God is going to either beat them back with plagues or like the Maccabees, they're going to rise up and expel Rome. But Jesus knows that's not what he's come to do. He's come to do things differently. He's come to, to, to lead a different kind of, resol- of revolution. He, and so Jesus weeps because they've missed the point. They missed the point that he's trying to make on what this movement he's trying to do is supposed to accomplish. Because what Jesus is declaring in the way that he rides in is that his system of peace is going to be entirely opposite of the Roman one. Rome is interested in fighting their wars in the world to conquer these different spaces. Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in fighting that kind of war. I'm interested in fighting an internal war, the war in here. And what we see in this story then is contra- a contrast of two different ways. There are two ways to enter the city of Jerusalem. Pilate enters from the west on a horse with 36,000 soldiers decked out in full armor announcing his arrival. Pilate enters in the west with power and fear and swords and crosses. Jesus enters from the east on a donkey, not with soldiers, but with children announcing his arrival. There are two ways to enter the city, and the two ways are contrasted and starkly different. Jesus' way is the way of peace, is the way of change, is the way of letting God work on us. Pilate's way is the way of force and intimidation. Two ways to enter the city of Jerusalem. And so often in our world, there are two ways. There are two ways to show up at work. One uses power and force to remind everyone exactly what the hierarchy looks like and where they sit on it. The other serves, it submits, it's humble, It empowers other people to thrive. In the world, there are two ways to be a friend. One keeps a scorecard, holds grudges, talks behind people's backs because they deserved it, they hurt you. The other recognizes that even good friends are humans and makes mistakes and offers mercy and grace and forgiveness. There are two ways to be in a relationship. One refuses to compromise. One way is so certain that they're right And until the other side completely collapses, they will not give in and they won't apologize. The other way, we can see in couples who even after being married for 50 years still have things to talk about when you see them out because they've gotten gotten past proving themselves and how they're right. And they decided instead to commit themselves to getting to know each other better and to hearing each other's hearts. There are two ways to be a teenager today. For the younger kids around here, you can play the game of status, attention, and look at me, making sure you always have your Instagram story looking great. Or I, it's, Kids probably don't use Instagram. I'm not cool enough to know what they're using. So, But you, you get the point. You can make it all about me, that I will take other people down to, to, to advance myself. You, that's one way to be a teenager in this world. But there is another way as well. You can choose to not play the game. You can choose to, be, uh, <clears throat> you can choose to, to push back on that and to offer something different. To realize your value comes in who God's made you to be and make sure that you encourage others to experience that value as well. You can push back on the phoniness that exists in online, right? Everything you see online from your friends is manicured, and you know that, right? We don't post the bad things. We just post good ones that are doctored to make them look even better. In so many different parts of life, we have, we're, we're faced with, this, with the same contrast. There are two ways. There are two ways to parent a child. There, there are two ways to deal with pain. Uh, there's the world way. There's God's way. There are two ways to respond to a broken heart. There there always is a choice with how we want to do things. Pilate enters from the west on a horse. Jesus enters from the east on a donkey. There are two ways. Two ways to live in this short life. And so the declaration of Palm Sunday is just that because so often it can feel like there's only one way. 
Like there's only one option. Like your back is against the wall. You don't have another choice, right? Nice guys finish last. If I don't compete with other people, like on their, on their own terms, I will lose and it will hurt. I have no other choice. But Jesus' declaration is there definitely is always the other choice. And so like Peter, when they come to arrest Jesus, do you, sw- you swing the Sakari, right? There's only one. It feels like there's one way, and so you grab the sword. You don't have any other choice. You swing it. But the declaration is there are always two ways. That's what's so electric about Palm Sunday. It's the declaration that there is another way to be. There's another way to do things. And we make that choice every single day. Next week, we're going to continue on this story. Judas Maccabee, he's a little PS there, when he reclaimed freedom for the Greeks, he did something. His very first move, first giant move after he won was to take a breath, to stop, and go to the temple and cleanse it. The temple was filled with pagan imagery, like we had said, because of Antiochus Epiphanes. He goes there and cleans it out, which is where we're going to pick up next week because Jesus, like Judas Maccabee, is going to head to the temple first, where, like Judas Maccabee, he will cleanse the temple. The stories are similar, but they're also wildly different. The revolution that Jesus is about to bring the world is different than what Judas Maccabee brought to his. And that is actually going to be part of the reason they're going to kill him. Up next week. For this week, what you get to take home what I want each of you to just reflect on this week is in which areas are you living in a world where you believe there's only one option, it's the Roman one? That you've got to play by the Roman rules, that you've got to march in with power and force and strength if you're going to get anything done. And here the declaration of Jesus is that one rides in on a horse with a 36,000-part army, and one rides in on a donkey offering you something better. Which will you choose? Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for showing us there's another way. So often we're, we're intimidated by the power of, of those in the world. Whether it's the power of culture or influence or the power of, of wanting to be liked or fit in to what people say is, is right or good. So often it feels like we don't have another choice. So God, we pray this week that you help us to see that there's always a second choice. There's always something, there's always another way out there. Give us the wisdom to see what that way is, that it won't be as flashy, it may not feel as powerful, but it's world-changing. Give us the eyes to see that way and the courage to step into it.